I'm very happy today to be speaking with Billy Harrigan. She is a traditional birth companion and a perinatal consultant here in Canada. Billy, hello. Hello. Thank you very much for this invitation. I'm very pleased to have you. I'd like uh, I'd like you to introduce yourself. I just gave you two labels, but uh, yes, introduce yourself for, for our listeners. I'd be happy to. Uh, I live in southern Ontario. I'm the mother to seven adult children, and I have some adorable grandchildren with another on the way. I've been serving birthing families in various capacities for over 35 years. Um, I'm a perinatal consultant for uh, both parents and professionals. I'm the author of the world's first certification uh, course for becoming a trauma-informed perinatal professional. So I tend to specialize in uh, birth-related trauma and pre-existing trauma. I am the former director of education for Childbirth International, where I had the delight of um, supporting their uh, continuing education, their content, curriculum content, and supervising the education of about 7,000 students in over 125 countries. So I've taught uh, doulas, uh, breastfeeding counselors, childbirth educators, physicians, nurses, and midwives in most continents. Um, and I also serve um, my community, uh, Southern Ontario, as a traditional birth companion. And that's, uh, that's my brief introduction. Wow, that's a lot. And that's a lot of years to be doing a lot. I think so many of us get tired. And uh, I'd love to know your secret um, about how you haven't got tired over these years. I've worked in and, in and out of uh, birth for that long, but I definitely had my periods when I, when I wasn't in it. I have some pretty deep questions for you today, and I'm going to just jump right in. So the first question that I have is, and I know that you could go, you could speak about this for hours, but what is happening to women during their childbearing year? Um, most will go into regulated services. I know we tend to call that a care, maternity care. I don't. I call it services. It is an industry and it is a business. And this business is very good at what it does. The results of their services is really quite alarming. There are very high rates of abuse of the birth and client. There are very high rates of trauma, uh, high rates of uh, perinatal mood disorders, often directly related to the services they receive, very high rates of unnecessary intervention and excessive surgery that is not benefiting the clients. So unfortunately, uh, the results, and this is backed up by research from around the world. I've uh, delved into this extensively. I have read thousands and thousands of documents and peer-reviewed studies uh, connected with families all over the world. I'm the founder and director of Birth Trauma Ontario. That's a resource for parents and professionals for birth-related trauma and the skills of trauma-informed care. And what we know around the world is in these regulated services, which are primarily hospital-based, about one in three birthing mothers will have a traumatic experience. And this isn't disappointing, and it's not an upsetting one where she said, oh, I didn't get what my birth plan said. These are all of the elements and features of trauma that includes helplessness and fear for life. And about one in eight, it's a very high rate. Now, it varies around the world, of course, and it varies according to the criteria being used. But if we use the American Psychological Association's DSM-5 for diagnosing PTSD, more or less about one in eight mothers ends up with postpartum post-traumatic stress disorder from her experience. So the outcomes from industrialized birth services are shocking. And truth be told, if I had results like that as a traditional birth companion, anywhere close to that, I'd be in jail. So yeah. this is um, a system that is often just ritualized abuse 
and they, the toll is extreme. Now, one of the consequences of trauma um, for women is that they can leave an epigenetic imprint on their offspring, on the fetus. So mothers with pre-existing uh, or with birth-related trauma, subsequent pregnancies can um, create an epigenetic expression that can prime the fetus, the child, for lifetime PTSD. So what we're also seeing now, after several generations of institutionalized birth, is we're also seeing the epigenetic consequences, where mother was traumatized, and this imprints on her daughter, who is subsequently more vulnerable to trauma, should she have a traumatic experience, and that primes her daughter, that primes her daughter, and now we have a generation of women who are not okay. And some of this, not all, some of this lays at the feet of this industrialized services. That leads me to some to something else, and that is, uh, I think we might have touched on it briefly when we were speaking the other day, the thing that I'm thinking about, which is a cycle of, um, of fear, shame, and guilt. And then sometimes that leads to anger, but often it just uh, does a kind of a circular motion of, of fear, shame, and guilt, which can arise from a traumatic birth experience. Um, the guilt part is what I want to talk about, because I've as soon as we start talking about the epigenetic consequences, which are real, then again, you know, the mother who went in reasonably innocently to, um, to, to have a baby is traumatized and perhaps traumatized to the extent that she does experience PTSD. And then on top of that, learns, you know, through kind of the grapevine that 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 PTSD is going to have a an effect on her child, so it's another circle of of guilt and and shame that that is imposed upon her, and and that that worries me. How can we get out of those cycles that, of course, are initiated by the industrialized um, maternity system? But how can we get out of those cycles to make them not um, lie on the heads of women? I think the roots of this come from uh, such systemic patriarchy and misogyny. Birth services are predicated on the idea that the female body is inherently malfunctioning or will malfunction. And without their intense surveillance, supervision, and intervention, then it is the mother's body that turns on her baby. And thank goodness she was in a hospital and thank goodness they rescued her baby. So it's built into the system that women are already the um, precipitator of everything about to go wrong. And it could be anything. She's too tall. She's too short. She's too young. She's too old. She's too plump. She's too thin. She's too blonde. She's too dark skinned. It just goes on and on and on. And high rates of intervention are being blamed on women now that, oh, they're, they're older or they're obese or whatever. But before that, it was they were too young and too thin. So it really doesn't matter. This is such systemic misogyny that we accept it because this is all we've ever known. And we are primed from our earliest days to get to a doctor to start surveilling our very faulty feminine um, internal plumbing, <laughs> our, our genitalia and our wombs and our ovaries. And they need surveillance as soon as there's a hint that we might be reaching Menarche because we are inherently dangerous creatures. And this is so internalized that by the time we give birth to our babies, we accept the responsibility for what went wrong. And we accept the responsibility and the guilt and the blame and the shame that we are doing something inherently dangerous to our babies now that we have trauma and that we're to blame for this. So the cycle of guilt over what happened, what was done to us, and it's that guilt that, oh my goodness, I, I allowed it. No, you didn't allow it. It was done to you. But how to get out of it is it takes a, a great deal of deprogramming. And those kind of changes um, to get out of it they're paradigm shifting. 
Um, I'd suggest that a huge paradigm shift usually comes either through being in connection with great love, uh, where you have, there's a community filled with love, encouragement, showing a different way, tremendous support where it makes sense. Or it comes through great suffering, which is what I see because I run Birth Trauma Ontario. I see great suffering. And through that great suffering, they often will experience a paradigm shift. So there's a lot of suffering out there because of this and because they're feeling responsible. But on the other hand, there is a lot of good news. PTSD can heal. And so while there can be a genetic epigenetic imprint, it's not the, not the child's story for life. It's only if all of those trauma-bonded support structures stay in place. And that happens too um, when women say that they would like to choose something different. They would like to move out of regulated services. It's often their mothers that are trauma-bonded to what happened to them that um, reel with fright for their daughters at leaving it. And so that's often a big battle for those that are choosing differently. When you mentioned that there's a high, high rate of uh, PTSD amongst uh, newborn mothers, um, in your experience, uh, looking at all of the documents, do, is, that, is that linked uh, with um, race, economics, or any other kind of category? And when you were talking just now, I imagined that possibly the base rate wasn't, but the fact that it's continuously linked um, to the trauma might be because obviously the poorer you are and and uh, and of a, of different races you might not have the the possibility to access um, trauma informed care or do you think it's just across the board if you're a woman? By and large, it's across the board if you're a woman. Trauma informed care doesn't exist. Um, there are t the tiniest pockets. And I mean the tiniest pockets of practitioners who have taken it upon themselves to become trauma informed and work in a trauma informed fashion so that they are unlikely to create that, um, what is essentially a brain injury, a brain injury on their clients. Mm. But they work within a system that opposes that because time is money. And although trauma informed care does not take any longer, than non-trauma-informed care, it does go against the grain. And so it's time-consuming to manage colleagues and culture. But it seems to be. Now, the research itself was not particularly delineated on uh, socioeconomic status or racial heritage. So none of that was particularly delineated. It was mostly just, uh, if you're a woman, it's going to happen. Now, women are also more likely to experience PTSD than men, although both are exposed to the same number of tra traumatic events or potentially traumatizing experiences. But women are more likely to be um, sexually violated. They're more likely to have their lives threatened, and they're more likely to have been physically harmed. And that's an, so being a woman is actually an indirect uh, risk factor for PTSD. And birth is a, a highly sexualized event. This involves your genitalia. It's also interpersonal trauma. It is person to person. It is one person or a group of people imposing um, their will and oh, on another, the victim, and leaving a sense of helplessness and fear for life. Interpersonal trauma does create more symptoms. The PTSD is more severe, it's more long-lasting, and it's more resistant to treatment. So birth-related trauma is kind of the, uh, the intersection of two primary factors. The first is the behavior of the clinicians. So birth-related trauma can happen because of um, an emergency but it's really not that related to it. It can be that, but the most distinguishing feature, the most uh, identifiable element is the behavior of the clinicians. So they um, are imposing their will upon the client, unsupportive, um, violate her human rights, do things to her against her consent, strip away her dignity and her autonomy, uh, impose fright and talk of risk and 
pull out the good old dead baby card. You know, if you don't acquiesce, then, you know, do you want a dead baby? But that has to be met with risk factors in the mother. A mother who is highly resistant will look at these clinicians, go through a bad experience and just think they're assholes and she'll be furious, but won't be traumatized. So there really does need to be an element of uh, risk factors or the trauma has to be so persistent that eventually it overwhelms her adaptive abilities and overwhelms her, her resilience. So it still can happen, somebody with no risk factors, but it just takes a lot more. And so those with, um, who come from disadvantaged backgrounds will have a lower uh, resilience because they've already been used up. <laughs> they've, or they didn't have mm -hmm. the opportunity to develop them because they had a traumatic childhood. They had a childhood with uh, adverse childhood experiences, what we call ACEs. So if the uh, child grew up disadvantaged with household violence, malnutrition, um, a parent who died early or was incarcerated, or if the person has already been raped, which, goodness gracious, I mean, so many women have by the time they reach their uh, labor and delivery, their resilience has been compromised. So they're more at risk. But what's interesting is within the maternity services, women who present with identifiable risk factors those who have a history of trauma, those who are persons of color, those who are socioeconomically disadvantaged, those with uh, pre-existing health conditions, or those whose fetus has uh, health concerns are more likely to be mistreated than those mm. who are perfectly healthy and advantaged. It's, it's really quite a shocking situation. It is a shocking situation, and I think a lot of it comes from, um, weirdly, actually comes from the power and the and the fundamental um, earthiness and the, the the primal characteristic of of giving birth. And I don't think that um, people that work within the maternity care system can have have any way of dealing with it they don't they don't ever they very rarely tear up when a baby's born they don't um seem to be able to look at the people uh as humans and so i think that that hugeness of the emotion in a way contributes to the to the bullying that goes on yes it does also there's very high rates of burnout in um Healthcare practitioners, 50% of OBGYNs report burnout. Nurses have high rates of, in their, in their industry, they call it compassion fatigue rather than burnout. Um, about one-third of L&D nurses are already struggling with secondary trauma. Midwives, about one-third to one-half have secondary trauma. So there's a great deal of burnout. And one of the earliest and most identifiable signs, identifiable signs of burnout is depersonalization and cynicism. They just depersonalize their clients, and there's a lot of cynicism towards their their clients, their patients, and that is so prevalent throughout the birth industry. And then we also have to consider what are the roots of this industry. Women were dirty. Uh, how long did it take them to shop, stop shaving their pubic hair? <laughs> how yeah. long did it did it take them to stop giving them enemas so they wouldn't they wouldn't poop when they were having a baby? or trying to disinfect the birth canal before the baby came out. So that, that still exists, that kind of inherent disgust over the female body. So how do you act differently towards birthing women? Uh, well, I'm not a midwife, so uh, I don't work in regulated services. I... Um, specialize in trauma. So everything I do is uh, trauma informed to the best of my ability. Of course, everybody makes a mistake, but to the best of my ability. And it's accepting that these are grownups. They're perfectly capable of making decisions. They don't need to be told what to do. They also don't require that kind of uh, ritualized surveillance. So much of what is done in birth services is uh, a series of rituals. I mean, birth has always been uh, surrounded by rituals, uh, the you know the ritual of which herbs are burned 
or incense, the ritual of casting away the demons so they don't capture the baby's soul when they come out, rituals of what the baby is first fed. It has always been surrounded by rituals. And today our rituals are the medicalization of birth. These are our current modern day rituals. And that's based in the fact that we have, um, we tend to think of medicine and technology as um, godly, <laughs> close to godlike status. We have a great deal of reverence for the practice of medicine and technology. So we, we choose those rituals. When women want my companionship, well, those rituals are gone. So they have to embrace the rituals that are meaningful to them. And there are other rituals, rituals of uh, listening to the baby, um, including family members. It's an opportunity for them to address previous traumas. It's an opportunity for them to say, I don't want anybody penetrating my vagina. I own it. Uh, I had one client after she had her baby. She said the most powerful part of that was she regained her no. She didn't. She was able to, mm -hmm. there was nobody there that she had to say no to, but she said she knew she could now. So it's a, it's a different way of approaching birth that keeps the family and the pregnant mother at the center of the experience. And her intuition and her knowledge and her innate knowledge, what she knows is going on, is, is uh, the primary source of information. Now, other information is certainly gathered, if they would like. Uh, information from blood work it's information what would you like to know and there are other ways of gathering information if they would like to know and then with that information it's an opportunity for problem solving improvement looking at things you know a, a mother that notices her blood pressure is rising that's an opportunity that's information so there's no concept of being risk out of companionship it's just um the companionship exists, and they get to decide what they would like to do, what kind of surveillance they would like, what kind of information they would like to gather, and what they would like to do with that information. So it's a different approach. Um, I, I was um, teaching um, on the weekend, and one of the comments that was made was that how um, different it felt to think that nobody would actually tell them what to do. And it felt kind of discombobulating to think that they were the ones who would be responsible for the decisions and the direction and the problem solving. When you talk to me about regulated services, um, can you clarify that for our listeners? What, what exactly does that mean? Regulated services uh, here in Ontario come under the Health Disciplines Act. And so they must meet the requirements of their discipline. Then they pass the exams in order to become licensed. And once they are licensed, they pay a fee to be registered. So physicians are a regulated service. Nurses are, midwives are, chiropractors are. These are regulated services. And they have their uh, scope of practice that is identifiable. And it allows them to perform restricted practices that those in the general public cannot perform because they don't have a license to do so. So suturing is a restricted practice and certain disciplines are allowed to do that. The government sanctions and legislation allows them to do that and they are insured for that and they must have a license in order to do that and those outside of regulated professions aren't supposed to do it. Are there other things that the, that our listeners might be wondering about? In terms of regulated midwifery? In terms of restricted practices oh, in childbirth. Because I know that uh, some women uh, over the years who have called me actually think that it's illegal for them to give birth on their own at home. Oh, no, um, it, Which it, it hasn't been for a while. So, so I think the concept of what's restricted and what isn't um, is something that really needs to be spoken about and clarified. Yes, restricted practices are identified in the Midwifery Act. So somebody who is not registered with the College of Midwives cannot call themselves a registered midwife. Um, just like I couldn't call myself a registered nurse or a physician. I'm not, I'm not registered with any of those. So um, one cannot just say, oh, I'm a midwife, if they're not registered as a midwife. Perhaps... Uh, you know, there might be some flexibility in saying um, 
I don't know, a traditional midwife as opposed to registered midwife. But it's always prudent to just avoid that. Uh, other restricted practices include um, penetrating the vagina beyond the labia majora. So I think uh, people don't understand that. Um, in essence, once a woman is pregnant, her vagina kind of belongs to the medical industry. So they don't seem to mind uh, sexual partners going up there, but anybody else uh, that is practicing midwifery without a license or medicine without a license. So that vagina becomes kind of their territory. Um, administering medications would be a restricted practice. So setting up an IV and administering um, synthetic oxytocin would be a restricted practice. Um, in terms of caring for the newborn, intubating the baby, um, that's you know sending a, a breathing tube down past um, the, the trachea to help inflate the lungs. That's a restricted practice. However, neonatal resuscitation is not a restricted practice. You can certainly help a baby get started breathing just like you can do CPR. CPR is not a restricted practice. Anyone can do that. Um, anyone can take blood pressure. My my little old mother in her retirement home had a machine. And every Saturday morning, the ladies would come over for tea and she would take their blood pressure and then they would sit around discussing it and what medications they were taking and how much salt they were eating. So the idea is that if, you, if uh, somebody took the blood pressure of a pregnant woman, well, my goodness, you're practicing midwifery without a license. Well, no, it's not a restricted practice. Uh, playing with a baby, palpating a belly. That's not a restricted practice. Uh, grandmothers have been doing that for centuries. That's not restricted mm -hmm. by all means. Palpate away. <laughs> you can measure your own belly. You can buy those pee sticks and pee on them if that's something you'd like to do. That's not a restricted practice either. So there are very distinct things that you need a license to do. And uh, it's not too hard to avoid them. I think that uh, that many people get hung up on those practices and think that they're so necessary. You know, you need to have a vaginal exam if you're going to have a baby. You need to have um, all sorts of blood tests. You need to have genetic testing and, and all of those things that have been impressed upon us that we need. And in fact, um, when I see women transcend out of that, out of that false uh, net kind of safety net, um, it's quite it's quite amazing to watch. It is. Those are the rituals, the rituals of medicalized birth. Uh, rituals give us meaning. So the ritual of the ultrasound or the uh, dating ultrasound, it's not hard to date a pregnancy. It's very easy. You don't need an ultrasound. The ritual of the anatomy scan, the ritual of the, um, you know, all of the other surveillance that gives a sense of meaning that you're doing something important, that you're doing something powerful that will ensure the safety of the baby. Well, most of it is proven to be absolutely useless and much of it is detrimental, but you know, we, we do what we believe. Uh, I always say my expression is, um, my mother Billy expression. We don't birth according to the science. We birth according to what we believe and we don't believe the science such as, mm. uh, you know, continuous electronic fetal monitoring. We've known for over 50 years that it's detrimental and does absolutely nothing. But it's one of the rituals that everybody feels quite good about. Um, yeah. But when I don't see the uh, lowest risk of the low risk, those aren't people who come to me. Um, the people that come to me, I mean, it can, they can, that's just not common. Uh, but for the most part, it's people with pre-existing trauma uh, who absolutely will not go to a hospital again and their um, situation is considered too high risk, according to the obstetrical model. It's too high risk for midwives. They won't take them. So in their mind, it's either go alone or they find a companion. So what I'm working with is not these um, ultra healthy 25-year-olds <laughs> that have no uh, health concerns at all. That's, that's not the people that I work with. And the outcomes are absolutely stellar. It's nothing seen in the medicalized industry. And now, certainly if there's a medical condition, 
I think medical conditions should absolutely be handled by medical people in a medical facility. Absolutely. But just very little of what happens in pregnancy is actually medical. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed that your work has changed a lot since the start of the pandemic? Um, I thought at the very beginning, I would be absolutely inundated with requests. And what was so interesting is that fear had gripped everyone that I didn't get a single phone call or email for at least three or four months. Oh, that's interesting. That is I, completely opposite from my experience. Yeah, I was quite surprised. And so it took about eight, you know, six to eight months of this where folks began to realize this isn't going away. These restrictions right. are here with us, possibly for the foreseeable future where maternity services is concerned and they're tapping out. I wonder if that's because the, uh, the original um, restrictions were so heavy here in Quebec. Um, we had, we had uh, doulas weren't allowed into the hospitals and mi uh, registered midwives were not allowed to assist mothers at home. So people were like, I got quite a few calls from, from women that were, wanting advice about um, having their babies on their own or, or, or looking for traditional birth companions. So I wonder if it was just a, you know, push comes to shove kind of thing. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, most of those restrictions were the same here. Uh, I believe for the most part, midwives were still going into the home, but mm -hmm. the restrictions included that the children had to leave the house. And when we were all told to shelter in place, there was no place for the children to go. So uh, the midwives would not come into the home if the children were there. So in that case, uh, the suggestion was for the uh, dad to stay home with the children and for mom to go to the hospital and birth alone. Mm -hmm. And that did happen yeah. a lot. Yeah. So, so now was, do you find that... Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, I think um, what I am observing is I think the COVID stress, the stress of the ongoing measures the isolation, um, loss of income, the uncertainty about the future. So many businesses have gone, the uh, COVID measures that make absolutely no sense. No idea what the next, I call them brain farts, <laughs> what the next brain fart from whatever government authority is going to come up with next. You know, if you stand up, you'll get COVID, but if you sit down, you won't. But wait a minute, you can't sit down here for too long because then you'll get it. So then you have to stand up and you shouldn't be outside. No, wait a minute. Now you can't. Go. It just goes on and on. Mm -hmm. So I think that's impacting pregnancies in a way that I hadn't seen before. Um, so many more breach presenting babies than I think I've ever seen. Um, more the, the labors are unfolding um, more slowly than. I've been seeing for quite some time. So I think it's mm. I think it's taking a toll. Definitely. That's super interesting. My experience with breach was always that uh that breach babies tend to be reacting to some kind of loss in the mother's life actually. That's mm. that's that's what I always saw. Oh, how interesting. Um, so yeah, so that's that's very interesting that you would say that. Hmm. Well, I think there's a great deal of loss going on right now. Yeah, yeah, there is. There's there's a lot of grief. Mm -hmm. I mean, just the grief that, you know, I want my old life back. Abs yes, yes. I need a job again. Are you, <laughs> are you doing uh, are you doing much virtual work because of the pandemic? Um, only if they're distant. Um, People who don't live near me, then yes, we'll do lots of virtual work. But uh, if we're within travel distance, no, they are just so grateful for human contact. Mm -hmm. So no, not not really above and beyond anything that happened before. So here's a here's a question. There's a there's a young pregnant woman, the age that you said, twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven, perfectly healthy. She she hears about you, and she wants to learn about how her birth may unfold. She all she knows is really nothing. She's pregnant for the first time. None of her friends have had babies. 
She knows nothing about the, the, the system. She just wants to know what she should do. Literally using that language. What, what do you, what do you tell her? Um, generally I'd outline her options. Uh, the options for uh, regulated maternity services, if that appeals to her. The option of self-directed pregnancy care. The option of connecting with others in her community for education and support and uh, learning more about pregnancy and nutrition. Um, and the option for traditional companionship. So just to enlighten her that there, there isn't just one way. For the most part, we tend to believe that regulated services is all we've got. You go to the doctor, an obstetrician, you go to the hospital, you hope like hell you don't have surgery, and then you come home and you get on with your life. So that's what most people believe exists. Uh, the radical folks know that midwives exist. And of course, we have that same ancient bias against midwifery that um, exists within Canada, because Canada was the only country in the world that was able to make midwifery wholesale illegal across the entire country from before Confederation. And it wasn't decriminalized until 1993 in Ontario. So there is this bias that you know midwives are not a safe option. Um, so they've done a great job of overcoming that, but it's been primarily through promoting the medicalization of birth. And they don't really know that there are other ways. Uh, some have heard of unassisted, and that sometimes feels very frightening if, um, because the idea of unassisted is misperception, is that unassisted is unsupported. And mm -hmm. that's a, a misperception. So uh, first time mom, I would outline what options exist and to kind of al align that with her personal values. What is it she wants for her life? What is it she wants for her baby? What kind of experience does she want as she welcomes her baby? And then to help align uh, her wishes and goals with the options available. That was the one thing that I found so tough when I was working within the system, uh, knowing, knowing, knowing ahead of time when when she named the the name of her doctor, what kind of trauma she would probably be going to experience, and just hoping that my that my assistants would uh, would speed up her labor. Actually, just if you're in the mm -hmm. hospital and out in five hours, then there's less chance that something's going to happen. That's so right. um, yeah, yeah. My experience as working as a doula for fifteen years here really really taught me a lot. It's a tough gig. It's a really tough gig, the doula world. I really respect people that stick. I mean, there are people our age that are still doing it, and I, I don't know how they do it, honestly. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> I did um, serve as a doula very briefly. I say it lasted about a half an hour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely loved being a doula trainer, um, but that role is not my history and it's not my, my personal skill set. So when I uh, first started having babies, um, I, was, I was young, um, like many of us were then, and I did what I was told I should do by my mother. She was, um, I didn't know this at the time, but she was uh, extremely narcissistic. Uh, all I knew was life was tough. And uh, it was easier for her if I did what she did because then her world made sense. So I did. I went to a, a teaching hospital in downtown Toronto. I chose a, a female OB who was probably the most patriarchal, misogynistic person I've ever met and uh, cried before each of my appointments. And um, at the time, I was, uh, I was a newlywed. My husband and I met at work and got engaged six weeks later. And we were married a few months later. And uh, I, we got pregnant on our honeymoon, so it was all just very rushed. And my mother's mm. advice was, do not bond to that baby because he will leave you. Because men like dating, but they don't like marriage. 
So I don't know where that came from, but I'm young and I'm thinking, yikes, I don't want the guy to leave me. <laughs> we, we barely know each other. Uh, he didn't. We're still married. It's been 38 years. <laughs> oh, me too. We've been married 38 years. Oh, isn't that wonderful? It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. Yes. And uh, then she was saying, you know, that it's birth is so scary. And she said, oh, oh, please don't die on me. Please don't die. Please don't oh. die. I thought, oh, my goodness gracious. So. Uh, I wasn't to bond to this baby that we were actually quite excited to have because my husband would leave me and please don't die. So I went to this teaching hospital and this um, angry OB and she said, I was a very petite little thing uh, back then, just tiny. And she said, uh, you gain about 15 pounds, no more than 18. And I said, why? And she said, because I need to be a fat cow and your husband won't want you anymore. I thought, oh my gosh. <laughs> So if he doesn't leave me, he won't want me. <laughs> and this was just the the environment of birth. And of course, there was no way I was going to go into labor and release my child into this environment because yeah. I didn't want to die and I didn't want this guy to leave me, which of course yeah. he wasn't. He was quite thrilled about the whole thing. But it was just this, this nonstop messaging. So I did eventually um, go in for an induction and it was the usual hospital induction where you know one thing after another after another and um it was to be a forceps delivery to demonstrate to a room full of people what it looked like so it was one of those glorious teaching moments and baby had aspirated meconium because of previous mismanagement throughout the pregnancy and off she goes to the NICU and I'm stitched up in a, in a way that good grief sewed me up so I was more like a six-year-old. So that was some serious birth control right there. And uh, after up in our, our bedroom, the pediatrician came up to my room uh, about four hours later. And he said, okay, well, she's she's alive for now, but I don't think she will be in the morning. But if she is, I'll come in and let you know. Oh. I said, can I go see her? And he said, no. And my husband said, can I go see her? And he said, oh, yeah, sure. Come on. So he went down, saw her. He said she was lovely, and he went home and slept like a doll. And soon enough, because I was so frozen and poorly sewn, um, just lying in a puddle of my own urine. And in the morning, the social worker came in to talk about the six-year plan for my severely retarded child. And that was the word they used back then. I don't know that they would use that word now. And mm. I said, well, is she alive? And she said, what? And I said, somebody was supposed to come in and tell me if my baby was alive or not. And she said, oh, I don't know. So she left and she came back about 15, 20 minutes later and she said, your baby's alive. I said, can I go see her? And she said, I don't know, that's not my, not my job. And she left. So after they had extracted my precious baby from me that I wasn't supposed to bond to or my husband would leave, then she was just going to die and I would never know until later. And that was how it was handled. So. She's alive. She's a mother. She's completing her master's. She's absolutely lovely. Oh, my goodness. But at the end of eight days, she was fine. Um, it took a while. She was screaming her head yeah. off, and they felt it was brainstem um, damage. But, in fact, she was just really pissed off. So they, <laughs> <laughs> they sedated her through most of her stay. And then at the end of eight days, um, I had gone into a great state of grief because my body just felt my baby was dead. There was no baby to hold at the end of this, just mutilation and humiliation. So at the end of eight days, uh, she's released in the NICU and they hand me this child that they told me was mine. And she looked like my husband. And I went, okay, let's now go home and live your life. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so that's how life started as a parent. And later, uh, I went to a light league meeting to just try and figure something out. And I met these women that loved having babies. I thought, oh, you're from another planet. What are you talking about? Yeah. And because most of them were just birthing at home with each other. So in time, uh, we joined this just this gorgeous community of families. And we went to each other's births. And we taught each other how to eat and how to feed our babies and how to breastfeed and how to gentle parent and how to diaper and how to figure things out and eventually how to use herbs. And, and it was just a community of wellness and kindness and 
Some of the women in it called themselves a midwife, and some of them had actually read spiritual midwifery and gone to a late league meeting, so they knew more than the others. So they were like, ooh. Mm. <laughs> so when I think about what is possible today, I think of that, that it doesn't have to be this ritualized abuse. It can be just community care. And what's really interesting, in 1987, the Midwifery Task Force uh, wrote a report to the Ontario government to consider the decriminalization and integration of midwifery. And in the appendix, there's various uh, research studies, and one of them talked about how women in Ontario and across Canada tended to have babies prior to the mid-80s. For the most part, um, some went to the hospital, but the history in Canada was that um, neighbors just came over. The neighbor who had already had maybe four or five babies, so she was the most experienced, and she came over when the mom was having a baby and just helped helped with the kids, helped with the cleanup, uh, smiled a lot, made tea. And she did that. Her career as the community neighborhood midwife lasted maybe four or five births, and then she retired, and another neighbor did that. The outcomes from these neighborly births where nobody knew a thing about breech presentation, they knew nothing about neonatal resuscitation or hemorrhage control. And the outcomes of these neighborly births were four to ten times better than anything seen in a hospital. Mm. So as it turns out, when you're just nice to mothers, things tend to go quite well. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Yep. And so rare. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, I'm, I often, very, I'm sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, I often see that when um, mothers come to me, sometimes they'll come be, you know, before they're pregnant sometimes in early pregnancy and sometimes in week 39. Um, I was even called once by somebody who had gone to from the uh, parking lot of a hospital because she was <sighs> going to go for an induction. And so we had a long conversation and she chose something else. But um, to watch the difference in their well-being if they started out in regulated services and it didn't agree with them. So their health had began to deteriorate. Their pregnancies were very high stress. How they communicate is often scattered and jumbled. They can't draw their thoughts together. But mm. after a few weeks of getting out of that system and away from that talk of risk and risk and fear and dead baby and, you know, we have to do this and there better be more monitoring. Once they leave that and regroup, to see their wellness flourish is truly remarkable. There's a significant change once they get out of that hamster wheel of risk yeah. and fear. Well, I'm glad you're doing the work you're doing. Thank you. I'm very, uh, I'm very grateful here in Montreal because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm seeing an, a group of a, a group of a, a community of women that are doing exactly what you were doing back in the in the eighties. Um, who are just getting together and being nice to each other and and helping each other have their babies, and I, I think that's that's the way forward. I bet their outcomes are spectacular. They are. They're, yeah. They see that's the sad thing is yes they're spectacular, but at the same time they're absolutely normal. Mm -hmm. I mean they're absolutely what one would expect. Uh, isn't that the truth? Yes. Spectacular should be normal. Well, and of it course, is. I mean, yes. if you look at birth, like <laughs> it's 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 spectacular, normal, uh, an absolute miracle, and at the same time, an everyday event, an every minute event. Yes. I'd like to close on uh, uh, the my last question is, what would one word be? What is one word that every listener could take from you. Oh my goodness, that's a tough question for somebody as verbose as I am. <laughs> okay, I'll give you two. <laughs> because you're an elder, you can even have three. Oh my goodness. Um, in regards to um, a new paradigm for welcoming our babies, goodness um 
The word I'm drawn to is compassion. Mm. I'm just drawn to that word. Compassion for what we've been through as women since the um, onslaught of the male midwife into this sacred space. Compassion for ourselves that we carry the mitochondrial DNA of those, who, of those women who went before us. Compassion for what we survived. You know, those of us who weren't burned at the stake, we were witnesses. Compassion for the lost wisdom that died with them, that we're all trying to recreate out of our, you know, perhaps collective memory. Compassion for those who survived through this and have the effects, the effects in their limbic system, the effects in their ability to learn and communicate. And compassion for our children. They didn't ask for this. Compassion for those babies that are treated so roughly at birth. And compassion for the women who are tricked into those inductions that they don't need. And the interventions that protect the industry and not them and harm them. And just compassion for where we are and how we got here. And for the entire birth world that is absolutely reeling right now. There's been such an awakening to what the medicalization of birth has caused. And yeah, there's a lot of anger, but I think we need to see this through a lens of compassion of we survived and we can move forward together. Thank you so much, Billy. Well, thank you for inviting me. This has been a delight. It has been. I'm I'm so happy to have spoken to you and uh, just just keep on keep on doing your work. Thank you and you too and thank you for this podcast. This is uh, such a a gift to the birth world. Thank you.